Lord, your worthiness and glory is beyond all telling. So we could feel foolish even trying to tell, but you command us to tell. So we're here, and we want to hear from you, and we want to tell of your greatness. This time of year when your people all over the world are remembering the greatest miracle ever, God becoming a man in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would tell, tell ourselves, tell our neighbors, tell the world with our lives and our words that Jesus, the Savior, has come. Lord, thank you that we are a people of your own possession. You bought us with the precious blood of Christ. And we pray that now as we go to your word together, that the Spirit who inspired it would help us to understand it in a way that changes us, that draws us to you, that, as Scott said, makes us more like Jesus. Lord, help us now to understand your greatness, your plan of salvation, and how completely and wonderfully you've done that in Jesus, the Lamb. And we pray this. In his name, amen. Well, they had waited as long as they could remember. Thousands of years, actually, since the beginning of human history. Ever since that dreadful day in the garden when our foreparents, Adam and Eve, decided that they were going to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. They weren't going to give that to God. They were going to take it for themselves, and they decided to go their own way. They shook their fists in God's face, and we followed them ever since. But even then, even at the beginning of human history, God promised that he would solve this horrible problem they had begun. And he offered sacrifice for the first time ever, and he clothed their nakedness and covered their shame as a foreshadowing of what would come one day. And he said it would be the seed of the woman, this one who would come from Adam and Eve, from Eve, and he, this one to come, would crush the head of the serpent. He would solve this horrible rebellion and this horrible brokenness of the world that had come, this separation from God, this one to come would be the one. And then throughout God's history with his people, he would do very important things to communicate what this one to come would be like. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited so that they could sing Hymns like, come thou long expected Jesus, and really mean it. They could sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. They knew that God needed to solve this problem, and they waited for thousands of years. And then they waited for 400 years in a particularly difficult time of silence from God. There was no prophet in the land. There was no word from him. It had seemed like he had forgotten about them and maybe even abandoned them. 
but they clung to his promises. Some did. Others went the way of the world. Others removed themselves from the world and went out to the desert. Others got caught up in the worldly systems, but some waited. The people of the land waited for the Messiah to come. And they knew that before he came, another one would come who in many ways would be the last prophet before the prophet came, one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for God's chosen messenger, his Messiah, his Savior of the world to come. And that's exactly what we find. The day arrived when the one preparing the way finally got to see the arrival of the Messiah, God's Savior, God's perfect prophet, priest, and king coming to the world. And if you open your Bibles to John chapter 1, we see this awesome day after thousands of years of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. We see the answer in the man, Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 19. Help us, Lord. John 1.19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who would bring salvation. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? But John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So this crazy man who didn't fit any social expectations that had developed at the time he was not impressive. He was not the one who came with an army or a kingdom or anything impressive. He was a wild man out in the wilderness baptizing people, these ritual cleansings, calling them to repent because he was the one to prepare the way. And then he points to the one he was preparing for. Verse 29. Can you imagine? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, the one the prophet said would come to prepare the way for the Messiah, sees the Messiah, sees God's anointed representative, the one who brings all the prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministries before him to a beautiful, resounding culmination. This one comes, and what does John say? He says, behold, not the general." not the political leader. He doesn't emphasize all the sorts of solutions we would think we need. He says, behold, the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb? I'm not sure what you're looking for in your leaders and your saviors, but is it a lamb? I mean, think about this. God says, all right, I need an image to really get the point across. When God comes to earth through the Son, when his kingdom finally is ushered in, when salvation is offered, when the power of God over sin and death and sickness and evil and hell finally comes, I need an image to really get this point across. I know. That'll do it. God's ways are very different than ours. You, you just got to get this. You know, one of our biggest problems, we're always coming to God with our agendas. He's so patient. He's just so patient. When Scott said, what, what about God do you think of? I, I, I almost always think of patience. I can't believe how patient he is with me. We come to him with all these agendas of what he needs to be like for us to worship him and how he better run the world and how he better do things. But this is the image he decides to use to describe the kingdom of God come to earth. His representative, the son of God, bringing his kingdom to earth is using a lamb to describe it. Now, have any of you ever spent extensive time working with lambs? Wow. Oh, Dave, the Oki. Yes. Yes. The, anybody else from Oklahoma in here? No, you have, Dave. Yes. On the, on the farm, Oklahoma, tending lambs. So you are the only one of 300 people who has a clue what we're talking about. You know, there are times you need to realize how ignorant we really are about a lot of things. We think we know what a lamb's about, but we don't. I've driven by quite a few lambs. Uh, but I haven't spent much time with lambs at all. Actually, I think I had one meaningful experience with lambs in my life. For most of us, this is the extent of our experience with lambs. 
which is not sufficient to understand the story. Now, it actually plays into the story a bit because you do use lambs for eating. I love lamb, but usually uh, it's, it's not something I think about very much. But think about God using this. Oh, look at my wife. She's a little lamb. Um, but... The one time Don and I had meaningful experience with lambs is when Kenny and Betsy Clark and, and Donna and I went to the Lake District of England, and at the time, Betsy's family, she had family who were shepherds. They cared for lambs, and we spent several days staying at their place and watching the whole lamb thing happen, and I actually rescued a lamb who was stuck in a little creek. I climbed in, and I said, I, I saved the life of a lamb. I will... Kenny was there, he can attest to this, but, but we, watch, and we watch with fascination how important lambs were. Do you know, especially in the first century, lambs were a source of, uh, of grazing, they were a source of wool. Lambs are one of those really cool animals that uh, doesn't just provide for you when you kill them, they're like chickens, they provide way ahead of time, right, with wool. And my wife's a serious knitter, and so I've seen and touched a lot of wool in my life, and she's made sweaters, and wool's an amazing thing that lambs give us. They provide clothing for us and warmth for us and covering for us, and they do provide meals. They provide meat, and they, they provide sacrifice. See, God didn't come up with this idea of a lamb to image what he was about when he came to save us. When John declares it, he came up with it a long time before that, in particular when he created a lamb. I thought about that a lot this week. God creates a lamb and knows what he's going to use it for, not just to provide wool and food and grazing for us, but an image that he intentionally orchestrated so we really get the point of what he's about and how he saves us. It's just awesome. I just love thinking. God doesn't use things in creation uh, without creating it in the first place to use it. The creation comes first and he knows, I'm gonna create a lamb and I'm gonna make it really important to them until they live in the suburbs of LA and then it's not gonna mean anything to them and then they're gonna have to listen to this idiot talk for a while so they understand a little bit. But, but no, I, we've gotta appreciate this amazing little image. This is what God Almighty, omnipotent reigns, decides to use as this central image to get across what he's about. In what he's like. I want this to settle in here. And John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we'll get back to that scene in a bit. But I want to back up, not just to creation, but I want to move it ahead to a time in God's work with his people in redeeming them where he especially emphasizes a lamb. And we heard it beautifully read this morning. And it's the lamb promised. But before we just get through all that, I, there are five things about the lamb I want us to leave with. I, honestly, I could go for hours, and I would love to, but you wouldn't hang in there, maybe. Some couple of you would. Uh, but 
But I just want you to see these things. Hang with me because this is one of those themes in the Bible that is incredibly edifying and rich and expands your understanding of who God is and what his word is about. If you just hang in there and watch this theme trace. So we're going to see the lamb promised. We're going to see the lamb anointed. We're going to see the lamb sacrificed. And then we're going to see him reign. Yes, a lamb reigns. And finally, we're going to see the lamb return. It's one of these themes that we trace through the Bible, and it's just awesome to see how it works. And I want you to realize something, not just about God and us and his ways, but about the Bible. And the more I study the Bible, the more I'm absolutely convinced God has got to be the ultimate author behind it. It's written by over 40 human beings who were inspired by the Spirit over thousands of years, but there is an incredible unity to the Bible, a coherence to it. It's a story as if there was one ultimate author inspiring all those other authors, and that's exactly what it is. And when you trace a theme like the Lamb, it's miraculously thematic and unified. Please don't miss that in the Bible. It's just incredible how you pick one theme like we are this morning and you'll see it traced through the Bible and it just floods your soul with meaning. So these are the five things we're looking at. But the first is the lamb promised. Now, God promised a seed would come from the woman who would solve our sin problem, but there were times he uses a lamb to especially highlight what this is all going to be about. And what we heard read this morning was this description of the Passover. You know what the Passover is? This most sacred observance in the Jewish calendar. Actually observed in in many ways every Sabbath, every week. But then there's the Passover. The Passover is this remembrance of God freeing his people from horrible slavery in Egypt. They had been in slavery 400 years, twice as long as the United States has existed as a nation. They had been in slavery for 400 years, and they longed for the return of the Messiah. And this kind of bondage, oppression, slavery, uh, heartache, difficulty is so characteristic of God's people for all of her history. This is what it's like. And so for 400 years, they're in captivity, longing for God's salvation, longing for freedom. And he finally provides it. You know the story, the exodus, These 10 plagues, but the last plague was the one that finally broke Pharaoh. It was when he took the firstborn in Egypt as judgment. He killed him. God did. But there was a way of salvation in that plague. There was a way of salvation in that judgment. And what you needed to do was take a lamb and with very carefully prescribed ways, sacrifice it. They went out and did it collectively, as we heard read this morning. It was something they did together. It had to be an unblemished lamb. It had to be presented at the right time in the right way with all these characteristics of this offering, without blemish, a male year old, Take it from the sheep or from the goat. You should keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. So at twilight, it has to happen at a particular time. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, the little of the house in which they eat it. 
And so this lamb comes to us as an image of God's sacrificial provision. God wants us to know that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Sin brings with it consequences. The requirement for a sacrifice and a payment in God, even before the sacrificial system is instituted here in the Exodus, we see God using this same idea. He's preparing them for what he'll teach them on Mount Sinai just a few weeks later. But he's here using this sacrificial idea and a lamb to do it. They go out, imagine, they gather their best lambs and they collectively go out and they slit their throats all together and they bring this blood and they put it on the doorpost, not an incidental place in the home, not the backyard, not the side of the house, not somewhere else. No, the place there where all the coming and going takes place. And the sacrificial blood of the lamb causes the angel of death to pass over. And they're saved. Their firstborn sons are not killed because the sacrificial blood of the lamb saved their lives. And so God says, remember when I saved you and the way I saved you and then instituted as a weekly and annual observance to remind yourselves the way I provided for you, the way I took care of you through the blood of the lamb. And so this is foreshadowed. This is a promise tracing all the way back to the garden, the seed of the woman who would come. But now we see this one who comes is yes, a prophet, yes, a priest, yes, a king. But now we add to the imagery a lamb, a slain lamb, a sacrificed lamb, a lamb who gives its own blood so we could be saved from death, from judgment, and the Exodus becomes this incredibly important idea in the minds of God's people. It's the freedom we desperately need, not from just human enemies like they had with Egypt or like we may have in our lives, no, but from our ultimate enemies, of our own sin, our own rebellion against God, of hell, of death, of the powers of darkness. We have victory through the blood of the Lamb foreshadowed in the Exodus. And then in our passage this morning, we see the lamb anointed. They wait all these years. John sees the lamb. And what happens? The spirit descends on him. This is the official beginning of Jesus' public ministry. For 30 years, he's taking up his cross daily, living self-sacrificially, taking our place in his obedience. But now he begins the public phase of his ministry for three years. And the way he does it is by going to this crazy man in the wilderness who anoints, who baptizes him in this ritual cleansing. And then we see the Spirit of God descend. Now we're finishing today a series leading up to Christmas on what we've been looking at called the offices of Christ. The office of Christ is not where he does his paperwork. Office here means his role he plays, the office of his prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministries. And this is so important. I hope you've caught it these past three weeks that Jesus is the prophet. If this is God, the cross, a prophet stands in representing God before the people declaring what he knows to be true about himself, about us, about his ways. And a priest really flips that around. He represents people before God and he ushers us into the presence of God. He says, let's go. 
Let's go with the blood of the lamb into the very presence of God in the holy of holies. So a priest, Jesus fulfills both the role of representing God and revealing him, but also the role of representing people and ushering us into the presence of God according to God's ways. And then last week, we looked at Jesus as the king. Oh, he's the prophet, he's the priest, but he's the king who brings God's rule and reign. And we are his subjects. We are his prophetic voice in the world as the church. We're the priestly interceders now extending Jesus' ministry. And we're the representatives of the king bringing kingdom realities to bear in the way we live and spend our money and vote and get involved seeking justice in the world and truth in the world and freedom for the captives. That's what we're about now, repping the king, representing Jesus and and being a prophetic voice and being interceding priests for one another. But now we add this vital image of the lamb to all of this. And it's an incredibly important image because Jesus is recognized by John as the lamb of God. And what happens when that occurs is he recognizes that Jesus is anointed. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Jesus is anointed by the spirit. Prophets, priests, and kings had to be anointed by the spirit to fulfill their role. That's why David says when he sins horribly, take not your spirit from me. And here comes Jesus. And as he begins his public ministry, he's anointed by God, by the Spirit's presence and empowering, enabling, and favor to accomplish everything he needs. It begins the process of his public ministry to accomplish everything we need for him to accomplish. So he's anointed by the Spirit. You know, these Old Testament ceremonies where prophets, priests, and kings were instituted included the anointing of oil, as this image of the necessary spirit anointing. That's who we follow, Jesus the Christ. You do know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It was not Joseph and Mary Christ who had their son Jesus Christ, right? You know that it is the Christ, the anointed one. Same word as Mashiach, this Messiah who was going to be empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God to accomplish everything God sent him to, to accomplish. He's the anointed one. That's what John recognizes as Jesus comes. And John then says again twice, behold the Lamb of God. And so he's equipped by God, empowered by God, enabled by God. And then we see that he's the Lamb's sacrifice. This is the central idea that you're probably most used to with this biblical idea of Lamb. But he's sacrificed. This one who comes is sacrificed for us. And as I said, this doesn't begin with his cross. It begins with his incarnation. As we were beautifully singing today, although he was rich, he became poor so that we could become rich in him. His sacrifice doesn't begin with the cross. It begins with this amazing humiliation of taking the form of a servant and being made in human likeness experiencing the glories of eternal fellowship within Father, Son, and Spirit, he now, the Son, joyfully submits to the will of the Father and comes as a man for us. And every day of his life was a progression in humility and self-sacrifice in obeying and overcoming temptation for us. Every day he was dying for us. And finally, that daily dying culminates in Good Friday the day he dies once and for all. He's sacrificed for us. You know, the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus' sacrifice in this way, in, in that Jesus, 
is seen as the lamb. Just like Isaiah 53 says. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone to our own way. We like sheep too. And so another sheep, Jesus comes and he dies for us. We all like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And then we see in Isaiah 53, he's described as what? A lamb who's led to the slaughter without opening his mouth. Like a lamb led before his shearers who is silent. He seems like a helpless victim, but he's anything but. He's voluntarily laying down his life for the sheep as one of us. And so then Jesus begins his public ministry with this anointing, and really he concludes his public ministry before he goes to the cross with the Last Supper that we also heard this morning. Then the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So they're observing Passover. This Exodus memory, which is a massively important theme. You know how big the Exodus is in the Bible? Once it happens, this liberation, it becomes this idea that people cling to among the people of God as God's ability and promise and commitment to save us. And he does that over and over again. He affirms and reaffirms his faithfulness to his promises. And they think of the Passover. And here Jesus and his disciples observe the Passover like good Jews do. But now Jesus takes that image of the, of the Passover lamb and helps them realize it's all ultimately about him. All those thousands and thousands of sacrificed lambs for millennia to get the point across that we don't just saunter into the presence of God. It takes sacrifice. It takes payment of the penalty of our sin. And it's so hard to understand this today. But Jesus says, as they observe the sacrifice, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare a Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepared? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And then a few verses later, it says, and they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. This memory of the Exodus, this huge theme. Do you know the whole civil rights movement is really grounded in the Exodus? You can't read a Martin Luther King sermon or read anything he wrote where he doesn't bring up the Exodus at some point. This whole idea of freedom from oppression and captivity and slavery is grounded in this biblical idea that God is the one who brings salvation and freedom and liberation from captivity to his people. And here Jesus goes back to the Passover to help his disciples and us this morning understand what he's all about. The king comes, and when he comes, he comes as a lamb. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until, the, it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus says the Passover is all about me. It's all culminated in me. And he took a cup and he'd given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what this table we'll celebrate this morning is about. 
It's about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what John says. This, he says, look, behold, pay attention. Don't miss it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you realize what's loaded into that one phrase? Behold, look, don't miss it. A lot of people are missing it. And a lot of the ones who weren't missing it didn't like it and were jealous of him and didn't like the way he was doing things so they had a different agenda than he did and the worst offenders were the religious leaders most responsible for helping the people understand this and Jesus comes and he says I'm the lamb of God and John recognizes and he says look don't miss it and I plead with you don't miss Jesus this morning He's not just some rabbi or some moral teacher or some religious leader only. He's those things, but he is the one who came to take your place and you need him to. You need him to. You don't just go into the presence of God with our rebellious heart like we all share without payment for forgiveness of sins. I know this is a foreign category. I'm really looking forward to our conference on apologetics and culture in just a few weeks because one of the presentations will be by William Lane Craig and he's going to talk about not just the biblical basis for the atonement, but the rationality of it because we barely have categories for this anymore. You know what's been interesting in my lifetime to watch the language used for the prison system completely changed just in my lifetime. When I was a kid, it was called the penal system and the, the, the penal code and what you do, and, and, and it was called a penitentiary, where you did penance, you, you, you were punished for your sins, but it's been completely changed. Now it's the Department of Corrections. And I'm all for correction, and we don't throw people away. Hear me right here. I love a rehabilitative mentality toward crime, but do we still, though, have a place for understanding crime that deserves punishment. It's because if you don't have a category for that, you won't have a category for the cross and Christmas is meaningless because Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by his own sacrifice. And that's what John says. Behold the Lamb of God. It's of God. The Lamb of God is from God, representing God. He needed to take the initiative in this way. And what does he do? Just give us a good example of how to live our lives. No, he takes away, removes, doesn't just dilute or just minimize a bit or ignore. He takes away the sins of the world, which is what we need. And what he does, he takes it away. It's gone through his sacrifice. And it's of the world. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for a select few. It's not for people who have impressive religious credentials. No, it's for the world, every tongue, tribe, nation. That's why we care so much about missions here at Grace, because we know he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And why we send missionaries and have Bible translations so this message gets to the world that there's a lamb who's taken away the sins of the world. And the reason God focused on Israel was always so that the whole world would be blessed. That's what he said to Abraham when he started the whole thing in the Old Covenant. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Now we need to trust him in faith. And sacrifice is necessary. And if you've never realized that, I want you to know you needed Jesus to die for you not more or less than anyone else. But equally with the rest of us, you need a savior. And if you don't realize that this morning, I'm not sure why you're here. 
Maybe you came with friends because you're in the area for Christmas and you're with family and they're these churchy people and you wanted to go with these churchy people. I don't know, and you're just being nice to not make waves, right? I don't know why you're here, but I believe you're here because God wants you to hear the message of the salvation that is available in Christ. He does save. And he does everything we need for him to. And it, in some ways, it, it's almost offensively simple. It's almost like it's gotta be more complicated than saying no to myself and my sin and yes to Jesus and his sacrifice in my place. That's what it is. It's repentance and saving faith. And if you've never done that, please, this morning, don't leave here without trusting Jesus because sin will be judged. It will be paid for either by you or by the Son. And your sin can be forgiven when you trust the Son and not yourself. Look, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. This is for those who recognize what I'm talking about. This is not some religious observance merely. This is something we do because we realize that we were all dead men and women until Jesus took our place. And faith has changed it all. And so please realize that you need Jesus. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, do it right now. If you haven't trusted Jesus, come up to the people who will be serving communion later and ask them to, to really help you trust Jesus and go to God and ask for forgiveness. And then take communion for the first time. Or pray with the folks who will come after, up after communion and ask them to walk you through this. Or talk to me or any of the ushers will point you to someone or talk to yourself or anybody up front. Please don't leave here this morning without trusting Jesus because he came and gave himself for you so you could be forgiven. And he's the sacrifice we desperately need. See, that's what Christmas is about. Can you imagine if it were just about Hallmark movies? It's not. It's about God saving us through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what you need to realize is that this Lamb brings other images into our understanding of this Lamb that seem impossible to reconcile, but with God or not. I don't know if you're really into English and you don't like mixed metaphors. Well, here you go. The Lamb is sacrificed and he reigns. This Lamb... (laughs) is also the king, remember? He reigns, he rules. Listen to this description that is the reality of Jesus the Lamb. Always was, but now on full display in the throne room of God, worshiping by, worshiped by his people. Listen to this description of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in him saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what we observe in Jesus. He's the lamb. He's the lamb who is worshiped now. He was slain, planned from the foundation of the world, imaged in things like the Passover lamb, anointed for his ministry. And now Jesus at the end of his ministry says, this body of mine imaged in this bread and this blood of mine imaged in this cup is what you desperately need and what I extravagantly pour out for you. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about remembering this amazing miracle of Jesus. And he reigns. Look, 
we have things about Jesus that we like to focus on at the expense of others. This lamb is also the reigning, ruling king. And we as God's people need to have a fully orb, robust, deep, comprehensive biblical understanding of the person of Christ. We've got to have all the biblical image in our Jesus portfolio. They've all got to be there. And we've got to work really hard to understand Jesus as not just the lamb, but the lamb who's also the lion, the tribe of the tribe of Judah. That Jesus is the king, the prophet, the priest, and the lamb. And this lamb is almighty. And this lamb is worshiped. And this lamb is coming back. He's returning one day. The lamb returns. Listen how terrifying the lamb is. Yeah, bizarre, I know. But this is how God does it. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. <laughs> For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? You see, Jesus came the first time. As a lamb led to slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth. You'd almost get the impression that he's not really in control, but he is. He's running the show, and Pilate doesn't understand it. The religious leaders don't understand it. So many of the people are missing it, but he's running the show. And he's coming back one day, and he's still going to be the lamb, still showing imagery of sacrifice for us, but with a sword next time. He's coming ruling and reigning and bringing judgment. Oh, the lamb is coming again, but he's coming as the judge of the world where every mouth will be stopped and we'll all answer to God. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that day? You can be completely ready. The Bible says that we are the people of God and we're different now because of him. L listen, Kenny preached on this passage just a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. I, was, I listened to Kenny's sermon after. I wasn't there that week, but I was cracking up in my car when he said he can't believe that there's not one church of the new lump out there. I'm thinking we should change our name to New Lump Church, yes. But yeah, we're not what we were. We're not distorted, perverted, messed up. We're now new. We're, we're unleavened. We're prepared for the journey with God as they were in the Exodus. Sandals on their feet, ready to roll. They're, they're not messed up by all the things of the world anymore. They're following God. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So you're not who you were. Listen how Peter puts it. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And the amazing thing is when you realize who you are in Christ and you're set free by that, you can now live self-sacrificially. You can actually start to live like Jesus. Because you're convinced your shepherd will take care of you and he has taken care of you and his son so you can live self-sacrificially in a way that almost looks reckless. Listen to what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And how great that we take the Lord's Supper and we do it as the people of God, loving each other on the way up, on the way back, and Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of the week. 
It's not easy, but that's what we're committed to, laying down our lives to show the world the way Jesus loved us. We love because he first loved us and he laid down his life for us. So we love taking up our crosses daily in love self-sacrificially for each other, waiting for the day when the ruling, reigning king will come. And look how it's all gonna end. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. It's all going to end one day, friends, with a wonderful wedding banquet of the Lamb and we will be his bride, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, sufficient because of his sacrifice. That's where it's all heading. And so this Lord's Supper is not just a recognition of what Jesus has done for us, but who he is now as the reigning lamb, and who he will be when he comes as the judge. And so this Lord's Supper, what we're doing all morning here, is just a trailer of coming attractions that we're showing to the world. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when we do this. So if that describes your understanding of Jesus, run up here or crawl, whatever you need to do, and partake of this together as the people of God. As the servers come forward, let me pray for us. Lord, help us to be men and women who know that you have done everything we needed you to do in Jesus. Lord, thank you that he's the lamb who's also the king, the prophet, the priest. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the lamb and the judge. Lord, help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. For anyone who has entrusted Jesus, Lord, I pray this would be the morning where they walk out of here a new creature in Christ because you've granted them repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to love self-sacrificially because you loved us first and sent your only son to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, the anointed one. Amen.